Thanks, choir. It was wonderful. <laughs> I've uh, wrestled uh, long and hard over uh, this last message uh, that I'll give this year. Uh, in many ways, it's not exactly the kind of message I want to give at the end of the year, um, but it's one I feel I have to give. And so would you pray with me that uh, God would be honored, because uh, I'm his servant, and uh, I'm doing what I feel deeply I, I have to do today. Uh, how's that for an opener and get people's attention? <laughs> would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask now that the words of this preacher's mouth and the meditations of our hearts, and especially, Lord, the obedience of our lives would be pleasing to you, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Near the end of the first century, the risen Christ dictated seven letters to John the Apostle to be sent to seven churches in Asia Minor. They were at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, all of them contain some compliments and some criticisms, except the church at the city of Laodicea. It's an exception. It receives no compliments whatsoever from the risen Christ. In fact, he says the church makes him want to throw up. Spit the church out of his mouth. Now, there's a bit of historical background which will give great irony to everything Christ says to them, and I'm going to quote the passage in a moment. You need to know four things about Laodicea. It was a great banking and commercial center. It was so wealthy that when it was destroyed by an earthquake in 61 A.D., it refused any financial help from the Roman government. And so we'll hear Jesus say to this church, You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Secondly, it was the center for the manufacture of clothing. The sheep there produced a kind of wool. It was soft, it was violet, black, and glossy. And so Jesus will say, I counsel you to buy from me white garments so you can cover up your shameful nakedness. It was a medical center famed for its eye salve. And again, Jesus will say, I counsel you to buy from me salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And fourthly, it was totally dependent on others. It was proud, it was independent, it was self-sufficient, but it had no natural defenses. It was only the, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that made it possible for this city to exist at all, much less be a commercial center. And its water was piped in from six miles away. No, it wasn't piped in. It was brought in by aqueduct, which meant it was exposed to the sun for six miles and became tepid and brackish. Unlike, say, Colossae, which was 
situated by a mountain river. It had cold, refreshing water, or Herapolis, which was next to hot springs, and it was a center of healing and, uh, and therapy. And so Jesus will say something very specific about how they are like their water supply. So now listen to the text. It's from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. The risen Christ now speaking to the Apostle John, and he says, To the angel at the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. And I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. You do not know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined in the fire, so you can be rich. And white clothes, so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put in your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love... I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them. And they with me. To those who are victorious... I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on his throne. Whoever has ears, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus has two complaints against these Christians. The first is that they were lukewarm in their faith. Their faith was just like their city's water supply. It was neither healing nor refreshing because it was shipped in secondhand from somewhere else. They were a church made up of nominal Christians. The word Christian was a label, not an identity. Christ was only a spoke in the wheel, not the hub. It was... Well, he was a departmental concern, not the organizing principle for the whole affair. He was an inoculation, a little dose of the disease designed to keep you from getting a fatal dose of the disease. There's a haunting passage in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul is writing to Colossae, which was a neighboring city of Laodicea, and he includes a note to the pastor of the church at Laodicea, saying, Now read my letter to the Colossians, also in Laodicea, and Archippus, that's the pastor's name, 30 years before this letter was written. Now Archippus, see to it that you finish the work that needs to be done. I said that's a haunting line from Paul because, well, I'm a pastor. 
I hear Jesus say to me routinely, Ben, see that you finish the work I've given you at Westmont College or before this at Hope College or the churches I've pastored. And What will those places look like in 30 years? I mean, I don't know. Maybe there were several other pastors after Archippus, but all we know is 30 years later, the work there is anything but finished. And what would the church have looked like if the work of Archippus or other pastors had been successful? I think it would have looked something like the thing that Jim Elliott prayed to God about. He said, Lord, make me a parting in the road to all who meet me so that they will either choose for you or against you. May they see God so clearly in me that they have to make a decision. Be that as it may, the Lord has a complaint. It's a devastating complaint. He says, I want to spit you out. And he identifies the cause of their lukewarmness in his second complaint. Their apathetic self-sufficiency. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched. These are strong words. Pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You know, Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees in the Gospel of John. He said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And how does apathetic self-sufficiency show itself among a people? There are a lot of ways, but the most visible is a blandness and indifference to worship. Why? Listen carefully. The depth and intensity of our worship is a direct reflection of how much we think we need the God we worship. I want to repeat that. The depth and intensity of our worship is a direct reflection of how much we think we need the God we worship. Martin Luther was once playing with his dog and uh, making it beg for food and sit back on his haunches, you know, and that intense look that dogs get. And, and he wrote, oh, that, I would, that my prayers would be as intense as my dog's gaze is when he begs for food. Good statement. Sometimes we complain the music is bad, the speaker boring, the style doesn't fit my needs. This may be true, but the fact remains that God is always hidden from those who will not seek Him. Always hidden from those who will not seek Him. Now, we're, sometimes we have fun at my dog's expenses and we will uh, hide food or put it under a chair because she can smell it, but she can't get it. And uh, I know it's mean, but uh, it's so funny to watch her stick that paw in there and moan and look at us pleadingly. And we, we finally give it to her. But, you know, it's just kind of fun to watch her do that for a while. Oh, oh, that we would come to each and every gathering for the worship of God that way. Hebrews 11.6, anyone who comes to him 
must believe that he exists. Number one, that's a must. And that he rewards those who get the kind of menu they wanted when they came to church or chapel. No. That he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's the must. That's the condition. And lukewarmness is really hatred, writes Thomas Merton. In the spiritual life, there is no such thing as indifference. That is why tepidity, which seems to be indifferent, is so detestable. It is hate disguised as love. Tepidity, in which the soul is neither hot nor cold, neither frankly loves nor frankly hates, is a state in which one rejects God and the will of God while maintaining an exterior pretense of loving Him in order to stay out of trouble and save one's supposed self-respect. These people in Laodicea make the Lord sick. So he issues a command and an appeal. He says, I counsel you to come to me to get what you need. The gold you're proud of, the clothes you're proud of, the salve, whatever. Come to me to get it. And he makes an appeal. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest. Be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. This appeal is amazing for two reasons. Number one, Jesus, the head of the church. Jesus, the Lord of the church, says, I'm standing outside. Asking to come in. And secondly, it's amazing because he desires unhurried intimacy with us. The Greek language, like the English language, had three words for the meals of the day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Breakfast for the Jew was typically a dry crust of bread dipped in wine. Lunch was a hurried snack. But dinner, oh, dinner. It was unhurried. It was intimate. It was leisurely. Deep conversation took place. Which meal do you think Jesus wants? He says, I want to have dinner with you. It's amazing. Despite his disgust with the church, he says, I still want in because I want to be with you. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And so the measure of our spiritual temperature, for hot or for cold, is the degree to which we want what Christ wants to give. Okay, what's this have to do with Westmont College? Well, there's been an elephant in this room for the last three semesters. You know that phrase, elephant in the room? It means there's something that's big and unpleasant, and folks would rather just kind of look the other way and not talk about it? Well, I have to talk about it. We have these gatherings for the purpose of worshiping God. 
these are meetings, even the ones that are more focused on, say, a theme or a topic or a speaker, they are meetings called in the name of God to honor him. Let me tell you you what I see as we have these meetings, what I've seen this last year and a half. People come into the gym, they sit down, and they, they fall along a kind of continuum. Some have come to worship God a lot, most of you. Maybe they're tired, maybe they're distracted, but essentially their hearts are in the right place. Others come in kind of panicked once in a while because of a test or a paper. And they use chapel time. A meeting called in God's name to give him honor. They use that time to study. Then I've seen headsets, I've seen Game Boys, I've seen laptop computers, I've seen sleeping bags, lying back to sleep, chattering during the service. I've seen couples stroking and patting each other. You know, the way we set this place up, it's hard not to see something. I sat there looking at a speaker and watched what was going on over there. And it was a job not to pay attention to it because I wanted to honor God by hearing whoever was standing up there. And what's wrong with this? Well, at, at its lowest level, it's simple disrespect. It, it's a kind of disrespect that even non-believers understand. Or maybe it's a kind of individualism which says, well, yeah, you do what you want to do, I'll do what I want to do. We happen to be occupying the same space, but we're essentially here as isolated individuals. And that's baloney. But it can be worse. It can and often has been, and this grieves me, a kind of bullying. Remember bullies in the playground and junior high, grammar school, maybe you wanted a drink of water and they wouldn't let you get it. And they said, what are you going to do about it? Now, where I grew up, that meant a fight. It wasn't good, but it always meant a fight. But if a bully is getting away with being a bully, they'll get away with saying, in effect, whatever outrageous behavior I'm engaging in, what are you going to do about it? I'll give you two stories. I had two friends visit our chapel this year. They were sitting and trying to listen to the speaker. It wasn't even me. But they were just here to hear it, and there were a group of students sitting behind them talking very loudly. My friend, one of whom is a pastor, turned and said, Would you please be quiet? I can't hear the speaker. These are two adults. And the student said, Well, you can move. Now, wait. This doesn't happen routinely, but it happens enough for me to be convinced that it's an ugly thing that has been allowed to grow here. The worst one is most recent. One of our professors was sitting in chapel next to a person with a headset on playing so loudly he was having a hard time hearing. This student was flipping loudly through his registration papers. So at the end of the uh, chapel, the professor asked for the student's chapel card. He said, why? He said, well, you weren't in chapel. Your body was, but you weren't. 
and you made it miserable for everybody around you. What does a young person do in the presence of an adult? Well, it's not what this student did. The student refused to give the card. The professor walked out with the student to make sure the card wasn't given to the chapel takers. Got outside, the professor was accosted by two friends of the student saying, why are you hassling this person? while the student went back to the line and handed the card in and walked back to the professor who said, did you go back to the line and hand the card in? Yes, I did. And then the student said to the professor, you have got to deal with your anger problem. Okay, that's, that's disrespect. That's bullying. But listen, this is a gathering to honor the name of God. And God is not honored when that happens. It blasphemes God. I have come to believe that God's name has been routinely blasphemed in Murchison Jim when we gather. And who's wrong? Maybe this will surprise you. It's not the people who do the outrageous things that I see every chapel. I mean every chapel. It's us. It's about us. Which is worse, the person who, out of immaturity, out of uh, anger, whatever it is, just does stupid things, which is worse, that or a community that tolerates it? I believe it's the community. I've dealt with a lot of addicts in my life as a pastor, and I know what happens in families. There's the addict, there's the alcoholic, there's whatever. And then there are those who are accomplices in the family. We call them codependents. And I believe there's a great deal of codependency happening in our college. And it's not about having rules to ban this thing or that thing. It's about people growing up and saying, are we the people of God? Does this belong to God? And will we tolerate God's name being blasphemed? And this bullying that goes on. It's about us. All of us. And I talked this over with my wife at breakfast this morning. She asked a good question. She said, Ben, did you ever do that? Yeah. Although I don't think I ever said the things I've heard said to adults here doesn't make me pure. Just, just do it. As I grew up in the time and place, I would have gotten clocked for doing it. So it wasn't necessarily purity. It was just fear. And I like what C.S. Lewis said about fear. He said, if you don't do the right thing out of love, fear will do. But did you do it, Ben? I said, yes. And how did Jesus treat you? He said, well, he kept... He kept knocking on the door. Was he disgusted? Yes. Did he keep knocking? Yes. And brothers and sisters, we must be a place where Jesus is welcome. And I don't think he's welcome. Oh, yes, individually. 
But the Lord's in, He's interested in communities. It's people that He wants to bring together around Himself. What Kierkegaard said about Jesus, whenever he sees a crowd, he disperses it, isolates people one-on-one with each other, with him, that is. And then after he's done that, he introduces them to each other again. He says, now, be my people. And it's, it's a church, it's a community that he says, I want in. And I think he's outside. Because he's not welcome when these things go on. Well, you can see why I wrestled with this. Um, it's a message to start the year with, not end the year. So I guess I'll start the year with it next year. I will. But I want to end with this. Well, one other thing. <laughs> ben, you're mad. Yeah, I am. I just need to put that on the table. I'm really mad. I'm hurt. You know, I'm a speaker, and... I'm old enough to be your grandfather. And I, I wanted to be liked whenever I get up to speak. It hurts my feelings. It grieves me. It grieves other speakers. Uh, so some of my anger is just my own little fragile ego. But I believe the Lord is angry. But he still wants in. He still wants in. And try to imagine this. What would it be like here? What if, if, as I'm speaking right now, what if Jesus himself walked in that back entrance or that front entrance and walked down the middle of this aisle and we all knew it was him? Well, because we saw pictures of him that, you know, we just knew it was Jesus. How would we act if he came in and said, I want to stay here at Westmont for a couple of months? What would we do? How would we listen What would we bring to him? That's what revivals are all about. It, it is the manifest presence of the Lord Jesus himself by his spirit. And I don't know why he does this. He appoints servants. Paul talked about the foolishness of preaching. It is foolish. But that's just God's way. He appoints people to do his work. And he says... And I appeal to you to listen to his servants here, whether they're a campus pastor or a professor. To, well, Jesus said, if they receive you, they receive me. And those who receive me receive my Father. In other words, in some humble and inexplicable way, the Lord takes flawed, weak, limited people and says, show me the honor I deserve by showing it to them. Jesus wants to be here and he wants to live here. And he wants to be fully present. And I I beg you, I plead with you, when you leave school at the end of next week, and if you plan to come back, that you come back with a resolve that Jesus will be welcome in Murchison Gym. That we'll act as though he were here, because he is. And we go back to churches and other communities, things that we, you know, we're part of, that we would treat those places as places where Jesus says, I want to dwell if you open a door and get rid of your lukewarmness, which is your, your secondhand faith, 
and seek intimacy with me. May God give us the grace to do that. And may God give us the grace to forgive each other and to uh, conduct all our dealings with one another with a soberness and seriousness that all our dealings with each other should have. For Jesus' sake, for his name's sake. Let's pray. Well, Lord, if my timing's all bad on this, forgive me. And Lord, any of my own flesh or egotism that's crept in, forgive that, and please blow it away. But Lord, what is real and what's true, I pray you'll plant it and nurture it here. And Lord, I pray that we would be sincerely grateful that the ruler of all creation wants to have intimate fellowship with us. Lord Jesus, we welcome you in. Do come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's all stand. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace today and forever. Amen.